0: Would you pray with me? Lord, we have learned in abundance or in need, in victory or in defeat, to say that it is well with our souls. Lord, one of the means by which we have learned to do that is through the preaching of your word And so, Lord, uh, we acknowledge there's probably nothing more glorious that we will do this week than be witnesses to the word of God preached. So, Lord, this morning, may you bless the preaching of your word. May you encourage believers. May you call sinners to yourself, both believers and unbelievers. Bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin by looking at our text. We are coming towards the end of a series on the book of John, and that brings us now to chapter 20, the end of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So we'll begin by looking at that text. <clears throat> John 20, 30 and 31. In this text, John gives us what's commonly known as the purpose statement of this gospel, the purpose statement of the book. So he's taking a moment here, just right as as the book is ending, to tell us why he's written this book in the first place. So we'll just read two verses, very short text. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Um, As has been mentioned, my name's Rex. For those of you that don't know me, I'm just a member here at Emanuel Church. I'm not a pastor or anything like that. Keep that in mind for the next 40 minutes. Um, I am a teacher, for those of you that don't know me. My wife and I are both teachers. We teach at the high school and middle school level at a military academy in Oak Ridge, uh, just north of Greensboro. And as a teacher... One of the things that I realize is if I just blow through the material throughout the year. So let's say grammar. If I just, we cover subjects, we cover verbs, we cover sentence structure, we cover all the parts of speech. Adjectives, adverbs, I love parts of speech. Um, If we cover all that material and I just get through it and I get to the final exam at the end of the year. And I have not done any review. Most of my students, especially if they didn't have any prior knowledge of this subject matter going into the class, are going to fail. That's just something I realize as a teacher, that if I'm not stopping and regularly rehearsing, <clears throat> rehearsing the things that we've gone over so far, then my students aren't going to do well. They're not going to remember the subject matter. If I just cover it once and then just leave it in the past, it's going to stay there. And so, here with the Bible, specifically with the book of John, we have the same thing. We have a moment here, a chance for us, just as the book's about to close, to review the things that we've seen so far in John's gospel. John says, these signs have been written, such should cause us to say, Oh, what signs? Let's let's look back. Now let's let's interpret what we've seen so far in light of this fact that it's been written for this purpose, that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So this morning, excuse me, I've been fighting off some sickness largely what we'll be doing this morning is reviewing the things that we've seen in the book of John. Just doing a couple of sweeping reviews of what John has gone over so far for the purpose of belief, what John has highlighted for us here. So, looking at this verse, you really get the whole gospel and a lot of the themes and elements that are present over and over again in John's gospel, you get them all in this verse, all packed into this purpose statement. We've got the signs of Jesus, the fact that these signs were written, belief, faith, huge element in John's gospel, Jesus presented as the Christ, Jesus presented as the Son of God, the, the idea of eternal life, which we've seen over and over again in this gospel from the very beginning, in him was life, his life was the light of men. These are huge elements that surface over and over again in John's gospel, and they all show up in this verse, and that's not a coincidence, because it, it's been said to expound these verses, 30 and 31, is to really expound the whole gospel of John. So that's what we want to do this morning. We want to view these verses, but we want to view the book of John through these verses. We want to use these verses as a lens through which to look at the whole book. So to bring these points uh, to light, I-, I want to just do two kind of sweeping reviews of the gospel of John from different, from different perspectives, and then apply this text to us. So I'll do that with not a a fancy outline, uh, just three points. First, we want to look at the signs of John's gospel. Two, we want to look at the Christ of John's gospel. And then third, we want to look at the purpose of John's gospel. So I think each of those points kind of presents itself to us pretty readily from this text. I'm not having to get very creative or dig very deeply to get there. So first, let's look at the signs of John's gospel. It's interesting, this word that he's used in this text, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which aren't written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That word signs he uses there, if you look at the way that word is used throughout the book, an immediate obvious pattern emerges pretty quickly. The Greek word there is used 17 times in the Gospel of John. 16 of those happen in the first 11 chapters of the book. That's interesting. So 16 times he uses this word signs, 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 miracles, signs, signs, miracles, signs. And then about halfway through the book, no more of that. No more talk of signs. Until the 17th use of the word, our text today. At the very end of the book, giving the purpose for the book, he brings back that word, signs. That tells us something about this book. The the, the fact that we see the word used so frequently and so heavily in the first half of the book, and then not again until the very end where he gives his purpose, kind of immediately makes it evident, the the structure of the book. So, if we remember, and Alex previewed this for us at the very beginning of the series, The book opens with a prologue, and that's a pretty familiar prologue if you've been a believer in Christ for any length of time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. The the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. All of that material is in the first chapter of John. That's what we call the prologue of John. Then at the end, chapter 21 is kind of seen as an epilogue at the end of the book. And then between that prologue and epilogue, we really have two main parts of the Gospel of John. And theologians have come up with with names for them. Um, The second second part is called the Book of Glory, because Jesus speaks of his death and his resurrection, his ascension as his glorification, the the hour of his exaltation. The first half of the book, you could probably guess at this point, is called the Book of Signs. So we have the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. It's kind of the two parts of the Gospel of John. So, just in this verse, by looking at that word signs, we can kind of get an idea of why the book is structured that way. John has the prologue, John has the epilogue, and then in the middle he's got these two sections. Signs, Jesus is working miracles. Glory, Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus is dying. Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus ascends into heaven. So, I, I want to look just more in depth, obviously, the Book of Signs, and then a, a brief treatment of the Book of Glory as well. The Book of Signs recounts, again, not all of the acts that Jesus did, that verse make, this verse makes that clear to us, there are many other things that Jesus did that aren't recorded, but some of them have been recorded in that Book of Signs in order to inspire belief that Jesus is the Christ sent from God. Interpreters of John's Gospel have typically noted seven signs that occur in this Gospel. And that largely comes out of this verse. We reach this verse, purpose statement. These signs have been done in order that you may believe. We naturally want to go, okay, well, what signs? What signs have been done by Jesus? So these should be familiar to you. Take a moment and think, those of you that have been with us now for the most, most of this sermon series, try to recall, okay, what were some of the signs that Jesus did in this gospel? See how many of them you can kind of pull up? Well, the first one, was in John 2, the wedding feast at Cana, Jesus turns water to wine. Okay? Second sign, John four, Jesus heals the official son. John five, the third sign, Jesus heals the lame man beside the pool. Remember, he couldn't make it to the pool, Jesus came and healed him on the Sabbath day, and that caused a big, big stir. John six was the feeding of the five thousand. Also, John 6, just after that episode, Jesus walks on the water out to his disciples. Sixth sign comes in John 9. He heals the man born blind. And then the the last sign, the seventh sign, comes in John 11. This is kind of the climax of all of his signs. I wonder if you know what it is. Think about what would be climactic of all the signs that Jesus did in the Gospel of John. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Isn't it interesting that the climax of that book of signs, as it's called, is a resurrection. Not an accident. That's foreshadowing. So we've got these seven signs. And in these signs, um, what, what, what's kind of drawn out, and actually I, I had the opportunity to, to preach John 6, um, the feeding of the 5,000. I kind of brought this to light in that sermon. But what's, what's brought to light in each of, these, each of these miracles that Jesus does is kind of the grand nature of the miracle. It's a, it's a big deal. It's not a small miracle. So when the waters turned to wine, it was a lot of water turned into the best wine. When Jesus heals the lame man, for instance, he's been there for 40 years. A long time. This isn't just a temporary ailment. This is a lifelong condition that Jesus undoes in a word. When he multiplies the bread and the loaves, there's a lot of people, little little bitty amount of bread, And then when it's over, there's a lot of bread left over. See, there's this superlative language in all of these signs. where It's it's highlighting the fact that Jesus has done something amazing here, something grand. And it's interesting, the last sign that we saw was in John 11. So all of these miracles, all of these signs are front-loaded into the first half of the book. And then, no more signs. So as the reader, we kind of, okay, well, what's John trying to do here? Well, look at the end of the book of signs. Um, I, I won't have you turn there, but if we look there, we see Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We have a resurrection, this ultimate sign, this climactic sign. And then the book of signs ends with this statement. In John 12, John says, Though he, Jesus, though he had done so many signs before them, They still did not believe in him. Okay, so again, John's giving us a little little narration there to give us an idea of what he's trying to communicate here in the book of signs. All these things Jesus did before the people, climaxing in this resurrection from the dead, and not somebody who had just died and he resuscitated him. He's been dead four days. Again, superlative nature here. And then what we find out from John, all these signs... All these miracles. The grand nature of all these things. All these superlative elements to these miracles. And they still didn't believe in him. So in that moment, John, at the end of the book of Signs, he kind of puts the ball back in our court. It's like he leaves the question open for us. They didn't believe in him. Will you believe in him? Will you trust him? And we'll we'll, we'll visit that uh, at the end of our sermon here. So... One word of caution here before we move on from the book of signs. It's interesting to note how Jesus speaks about this topic of signs in the first half of John's Gospel. Again, just looking over the uses of that word signs, just, it's noticing how Jesus deals with this, this topic. Sometimes, Jesus seems to commend signs. And say, yes, look at the signs. Believe on, on account of these signs. Other times, Jesus seems to condemn people for just believing on account of the signs. You're just here because of the signs. And so it's interesting to kind of see that. I'll give you two instances. When the official son son needs healing and the official comes to ask Jesus for for healing for his son, Jesus responds to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So as a reader, we think, okay, so I don't need to just be focused on signs and wonders. I don't need to believe just on account of the signs. Okay, Jesus, I got you. Well, then a couple chapters later, After he feeds the the 5,000, Jesus says to them, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you just ate your fill of the loaves. Well, there Jesus seems to wish they had believed in him on account of the signs. You're not here because you saw the signs. You're just here because you you ate the bread. Well, which is it? Uh, It seems like Jesus has this relationship with these signs where sometimes he commends them for belief. Other times he cautions against believing because of the signs. Well, John highlights these cautions because he doesn't want us to merely be dazzled by the miracles themselves, just like the original readers, just like the original audience that was there when it took place. He doesn't want us just to see, oh, wow, miracles, oh, cool. No, these miracles are commended to us for sincere, heartfelt belief in Jesus Christ. In fact, in John 2, and I won't have you turn there, but there's a chilling passage that some of you may be familiar with it. John 2, John says when Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he had been doing. And this is just after the wedding feast of Cana, so that you know, maybe they've heard about the, the water turned to wine, or maybe Jesus has done some other signs that John hasn't recorded here. But many believed in his name. Hear that, they believed in his name when they saw the signs he had been doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man because he knew himself what was in man. So it says that these people believed on Jesus' name because of the signs, but Jesus knew that their hearts were not truly believing in him. That should be chilling for us because it's just another one of those passages in the scriptures where the Bible warns us, okay, those of you who profess belief in Christ, be constantly examining your heart Because false faith exists and false faith is condemning. It leads to eternal destruction. So as we move on from discussing just briefly these signs, take heed of your hearts. Christians, I mean, people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Examine your hearts because it's possible for us to have some sort of event or experience Some emotional experience in our lives that causes us to follow Jesus, but perhaps only for a time. Over time, our hearts grow cold and dead, and many of us have seen this firsthand. People fall away from Jesus who once professed faith in him. Many times, that's tied to a similar phenomenon as what's happening here. People who saw something that drew them to Jesus or they had some emotional experience that they'd never really felt before and they attached themselves to Jesus. But perhaps Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knows our hearts and he knows what's in man. So, in response to these signs, it's not like there are just two groups, the people that believed in Jesus and the people that rejected Jesus. There are people who believed in Jesus and eventually Rejected Jesus. People who kind of half believed in Jesus. People who were kind of dazzled by what he was doing. Maybe they thought that they could get something out of what he had to offer. But then when all the talk of discipleship and cross carrying and difficulty came along, they fell away. Let us not make the same mistake. So in this this message, in this text, as we look at these ideas of eternal life, of belief, as we examine Christ and the signs and faith in John's gospel, let us also examine our own hearts to see whether we have believed aright. The book of glory, then, begins with this this text. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So John gives us a little signpost here. The book of signs, we're not going to talk about signs anymore. Now, Jesus' hour has come to depart out of the world, to return to his Father. So now the rest of the book of John is going to be, from chapter 13 onward, is going to be Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples, Jesus' journey to the cross, Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' resurrection. The rest of the book is basically just anticipating Jesus' passion and Jesus' eventual glorification up to the Father. So John has presented that Jesus is clearly the Christ. I mean, who, when someone says in the book, when the Christ comes, will he do signs such as this man has done? Jesus is clearly the Christ. John has presented himself that way and the people have clearly rejected him. So in the rest of the book, Jesus turns his attention on those who have believed in him and those whom he will eventually send out when he is glorified. So, let's take a look at Jesus now. So those are the signs in John's gospel. Again, we just kind of looked at the whole gospel of John in review there. And now two, let's look at the Christ of John's gospel, having looked at the signs. So, let's now ask our text, let's look again and let's ask the text, who is the Jesus that John talks about? So again, our text is, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So how does John present Jesus in his gospel? And that may seem like a really boring question, like, okay, who is Jesus? We all know who Jesus is. Can we just move past the part where we get to something else? We all get Jesus, we know. Well, It's interesting. Jesus is presented in a multitude of ways in Scripture. I mean, just recall ways that the Scripture presents Jesus. He's a king, an eternal king who rules in power. He's a high priest interceding for his people. He's a warrior covered in the blood of his enemies. He's the son of man who is foretold by the prophets Daniel and Ezekiel. He's a servant who suffers for the sins of transgressors. He's a lamb who's offered for the sake of sins. So there are a lot of different ways we can view Jesus. I mean, we may be familiar with who Jesus is. My question is, okay, how does John present Jesus? And why does he present Jesus that way? So, two ways, and they're they're right here in the text. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So there's two elements about Jesus that John wants us to come away from this book convinced of that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is God's own Son. So why does John focus on these two? And then how does he bring that to light? Well, first, let's look at the idea of Christ. You may, you may know this, you may not. Um, you know, Jesus Christ. Okay, well, what is Christ? Is that like a name? Is that part of his name? Is that his last name? Um, Christ is just a title that basically means the same thing as Messiah. So when you think Christ, think the same thing as Messiah. They're just two different ways of coming at the same idea. Christ comes from the Greek. Christos comes from a Greek verb that means to anoint. Messiah comes kind of from Hebrew the Mashiach, the the Messiah that the Jewish people were looking forward to and anticipating for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Uh, both of those ideas kind of have that idea of being God's anointed one, the one that God will send, the Messiah, the Christ. So when you think Christ, think synonymously with the word Messiah. And John presents Jesus clearly as the Messiah, the the long-expected Jesus the the Messiah that they had been looking for and expecting and anticipating for thousands of years. In the first chapter of John, in chapter one, Andrew says to his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah. In chapter four, Jesus himself responds to the, the woman at the well. She says, I know that when Messiah comes, the one who's called Christ, he will tell all these things to us. And Jesus, what does he say to her? I that speak to you am he. So from from the words of others, from the words of his followers, from Jesus' own lips, John wants us to be clear on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah who will lead, teach, and save God's people. But John goes further. John presents an unexpected Messiah, a Messiah that the people of Israel did not anticipate, did not look for, and eventually did not want. Uh, And The way that John presents Jesus has caused a a lot of Jews to stumble, even to this day. Uh, The Jesus that's presented in John is a stumbling block to Jews. And I'll give one quote. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with uh, Ben Shapiro, kind of a a polarizing political commentator. And whatever your views are about him, um, the point here is that he's a practicing Jew. And in an interview that he did, Uh, this is what he said about Jesus as the Messiah. He says, Jesus' vision of himself as the Messiah is completely different from the prior vision of what the Jewish Messiah is and is actually outside the scope of how Jews have ever described the Messiah. The Messiah in Judaism has always been a political figure who's been destined to restore the kingdom of Israel, maintain control of that kingdom, bring more Jews back to Israel, these are considered to be the things that the Messiah does. But the idea of the Messiah as embodiment of God is totally foreign to Jewish religious philosophy going all the way back to the beginning. End quote. So you see, people today even reject Jesus as the Messiah because of the way that John specifically presents him as God. So, John's picture of this Messiah is not just the things that Israel would have expected their Messiah to be, but it includes this exalted divine component that was totally unexpected. John 1, Jesus is God's own word, God's own revelation of himself, the creator of all things. John 5, Jesus will judge the world. Jesus is the giver and sustainer of life itself. John 6, Jesus will raise the dead for judgment on the last day. John 8, Jesus is himself the I Am who existed before Abraham. John 20, John records Thomas' confession that Jesus is God. Jesus accepts worship as God. If If you encounter people that do deny the deity of Jesus Christ, that's a wonderful place to take them to. That Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God, to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 Thomas, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. I I am the Lord. I'm not God, though. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus accepts that worship as God. He doesn't correct him. The angels didn't do that. When people fell down to the angels, they would say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 get up. Worship God. Don't worship me. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus accepts that worship as God. So if you do encounter people that challenge, that the Bible doesn't even present Jesus as God. That's just, that was made up by Constantine in 325. Take them to, take them to John. Take them to Thomas' confession. No, no, no. Jesus accepts worship as God. John 21, at the end of John, Peter confesses that Jesus knows everything. And again, Jesus doesn't correct him. These are the elements that were not expected to be a part of the Messiah's repertoire, job description. That he himself is God. But that's how John presents him. This includes the I am statements of Jesus throughout the, throughout the gospel of John. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to come to the Father, you must do it through me. This exalted view of Christ is what John wants us to believe, to receive and to love and to hold. So John is, in a lot of ways, a massive overstatement of what the Jews expected the Messiah to be. It is for this reason that John is considered to have the most exalted Christology of all the Gospels. It is most clearly seen in John who Jesus, is, who Jesus really is, what Jesus' identity really is. Secondly, Jesus is the son of God. So he's the Christ and he's the son of God. This truth that Jesus is God's son does two things simultaneously. First, it elevates Jesus. Of all the messengers that have come from God, none of them has been his son. Jesus speaks this way in the parables. Remember the parable of the the Lord who sends messengers into the the, the rowdy kingdom and uh, he says, well, I'll send my own son. Certainly they'll listen to him. There's a a step up there, an exalted, elevated level that this is his own son that's been sent. Hebrews does the same thing in reference to Jesus. The book of Hebrews says, "You know, we've had prophets and we've had angels in the past, but to which of the angels has God ever said, you are my son, this day have I begotten you? That's what the whole first chapter of Hebrews is about. Jesus' elevated, exalted status as a messenger of God because he's God's own son, This allows Jesus to make such grand and exclusive statements like no one comes to the Father if they don't come through me. Jesus' status as God's Son elevates him and sets him apart from any other messenger that God's ever sent before. At the same time, Jesus' status as God's Son subordinates him, at least functionally, to the Father. Jesus' admits this himself over and over again. Listen to some of the words of Jesus when it comes to his relationship with the Father. And again, John gives us a clearer view of this than any other gospel. If you want to know what the relationship is like between Jesus and the Father, you must go to John. John has the high priestly prayer in John 17, where we see Jesus' extended prayer to the Father. John contains John 6, where we learn that God gave God the Father gave souls to Jesus before the foundation of the world and entrusted them to his care and his keeping. It's John that gives us these exalted views of Jesus, but this the status that Jesus has of God's son subordinates him to the Father. And what do you mean Jesus is subordinate to the Father? They're both God. Well, just listen. John 5. When Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath day, people pitch a fit. You can't do this on the Sabbath. What does Jesus say? The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Do listen to that. Jesus says the son can do nothing of his own accord. That's huge. John eight, I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father has taught me. John 14, Jesus goes so far as to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the status of Jesus as God's Son, it it connotes this, this subordination, this glad and happy dependence that Jesus has upon the Father. This joyful expression that Jesus gives us, I'm just doing what my Father does. Do we think this way about Jesus? I just want to take, take a moment and, and press on this a little bit. When we think of Jesus, do we think of that intimate connection he has with the Father? Or maybe more importantly, do we think of the Father this way? I think what can happen, happens to me, truth be told, is we hold on to this view, this kind of passive steady hum in the back of our minds that God the Father is only ever stern, displeased with how we've, act, how we've acted, disappointed with what we didn't do or what we did do that we shouldn't have done. or He's, he's unhappy with our lack of progress and holiness. If you ever view the Father that way, maybe not actively, but maybe just carrying that around, this assumption that God is just upset and I need to, I need to go to him to appease him. Christ is a living illustration that that's just not true. Christian, if you look at Christ and you see a kindness, a tenderness, a gentleness, a mercy, a welcoming attitude towards sinners that you find attractive, remember, he's only doing what he's seen the Father doing. Let's not dishonor the Father by carrying around the assumption that he's not as merciful as Christ. It's not true. If we want to know what, the, what God the Father is like, all we have to do is look at Christ. And if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. So if we look at Jesus and we see this, this, this friend of sinners, open arms toward any sinner that would come to him and lay down his arms and forsake his rebellion and come to Jesus, Jesus only has that disposition because the Father has that disposition. Jesus only speaks what his Father has taught him. And so if Jesus has mercy on sinners, it's because God the Father has mercy on sinners. If Jesus is kind to Christians who stumble, it's because the Father is kind and merciful towards Christians who stumble. These are the the ideas that John wants to communicate to us. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God's own son. And these aren't distinct ideas. I hope you see that. It's not like they're two separate things. They coalesce together into this one point that John's trying to make about Jesus. Jesus is sent from God, his father. That's what John wants us to see in this gospel. That's what he wants us to believe about Jesus after reading this gospel. This man is clearly sent from God, his own father. So we've seen the signs of John's gospel. I'm sorry the mic keeps doing that. I'm trying to adjust it. I, I don't know. Just don't be distracted by that. Just You hear it, you're like, ah, not distracting. Still listening. We've seen the signs of John's gospel. We've seen the Christ that's presented in John's gospel. Finally, let's look at the purpose of John's gospel. Again, let's ask the text, for what purpose does this Christ Present these signs in this gospel. And I hope you've noticed, throughout this message, all we've been doing is just asking questions of our text. That's all we've been doing. These signs have been written. What signs? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Okay, well, in what ways is Jesus the Christ? In what ways is Jesus God's Son? What what do we learn about those things in John's gospel? That's a great Bible reading strategy. I I, I personally, I struggle a lot of times to wake up in the morning and to be quickly edified by God's word. I just struggle with that. I read. Okay, how much do I read? When do I stop reading? Okay, let me me try to take that as a takeaway. One way to remedy that when you're reading, just ask questions of the text. Say, what do you mean? What does he mean by that? Well, what does that mean? Ask those questions of the text, and if we chase those questions, we're going deeper and deeper and deeper into the text, and we will quickly find that we've been edified and we didn't even realize it. We were just asking questions and chasing down answers. That's a helpful way of approaching Bible reading, a helpful way of exposing what's there in the text. Just ask questions of the text. So just put that in your pocket. Um, Finally, the purpose of John's gospel. For what purpose... Does John present this Christ? Does, what, for what purpose does John present these signs? Hopefully you see it right there in the text. This, nothing novel or secret. These are written so that, great, your ears should go up. Okay, so that. Tell me why. What, what's, what's this all for? What's your purpose, John? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This idea of belief and believing is pretty central in John. It's a big deal. You'll see it all over the book. Um, And so it's pretty imperative that we have a good idea of what John means when when he says believe. Those of you that know the story of Martin Luther, if you're familiar with who Martin Luther is, and no, I don't mean Martin Luther King Jr., My students make that problem all the time. It was the the 500th anniversary of the Reformation uh, when I was a teacher in October of 2017. And I remember I tried to show a little video in class about it, and they're like, wait, I didn't know Martin Luther King Jr. lived that long ago. I'm like, no, no, Martin Luther, not King Jr., different one. Um, But if you know the story of Martin Luther, you'll know that he was a very devoted monk. So he he was a monk. He's bothered in his conscience about his sins, he would spend hours confessing his sins to the priests. He would walk out of the confession booth, walk right back in the confession booth because he forgot something or something had happened as soon as he walked out. He had a thought that he shouldn't have, that dishonored God, so he's got to walk back in and keep confessing his sins. And none of these things appeased his conscience. And the thing that, that provoked him, that irritated him most, most clearly was a verse that maybe you're familiar with. It's in Romans chapter 1 says that we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto, the, unto salvation. One line there, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Martin Luther said, quote, how I hated that word, righteousness of God, because he perceived it to be God's righteousness whereby he punishes unrighteous sinners. How's that good news? How is that gospel? In the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed? Martin Luther saying, it's his righteousness that's the problem for me. That's my issue. How's is that good news? If he wasn't so righteous, I could go to heaven. So that deeply, deeply agitated him. Until eventually he, uh, he says, in his own words, I gave heed to the context. And he realized that this righteousness referred to God giving his own righteousness to sinners who come to him, thereby declaring them just and righteous and not deserving of of punishment. And then he says that that text, that word, righteousness of God, it became to me as the gates of paradise. That experience is very, very similar to my experience with the word believe. The idea of belief. Belief. I, for many years, struggled with uh, a a doubt whether or not I was genuinely a Christian. I I wondered, okay, am am I believing right? Did I do it right? Uh, I I remember, even in college, I I believed in a a pre-tribulational rapture at that point, and so I remember waking up in the middle of the night and just feeling to make sure my roommates hadn't been taken in the rapture in the middle of the night. Just terrified, and that seems funny. Now, it's like, oh, you're feeling, oh, no, that was Terrifying. I remember walking around my house and no one was home thinking, oh my goodness, I'm I'm toast. Um, And that, I mean, I would wake up in the night shivering. And it was, and all of my concerns, all of my worries and fears were all based on this idea of belief. I wanted something more clear than that. But the Bible just says believe. What does that mean? I use that word 20 different ways every day. What does John mean when he says whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life? And honestly, I I hated that word believe. I remember telling a a close friend in a coffee shop in Pensacola, Florida that was so angry at God for being so vague. I remember saying those words. Why is he so, I mean my eternal destiny depends on how I understand him to use the word believe. Like give me something more concrete that I can do. Um, I would ask people, what does that mean, believe in him? Well, it means have faith, you know? Whoa, 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 what does that mean, have faith? Well, I mean, I mean, you believe that God no, 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 don't go back to believe, help me out here. And uh, I felt like nobody could help. Little phrases from the book of John proved to be a life preserver for me. They saved my life little descriptors that John gives, little little rephrasing that John does. John doesn't leave us in the dark about what he means by believe. I was just missing it for a long time. A few examples of that. John 1.12, to all who did receive him who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Did you catch that? To all who did receive him who believed on his name, believed received. Similar ideas here. John's drawing a line there. He's saying, hey, you want to know what I mean by believe? I mean receiving Jesus. John 3, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what did the people have to do? Moses lifted up the serpent. They're looking at him In the same way, whoever believes on Jesus has eternal life. it's, It's a looking to Christ. See, John's filling in the gaps here. He's telling us what he means when he says believe. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. That informs me, okay, whoever believes life, whoever does not, we would expect him to say believe, but he doesn't. Whoever does not obey the Son So, okay, there's an element of obedience in this belief. This isn't a belief that's divorced from obedience. Like I can just believe in Jesus and then do whatever I want for the rest of my life. John 4, everyone that drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, okay, so it's a a drinking here. Jesus says in John 6, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Okay, so believing is coming to Jesus for food. I'm hungry, I want food, I'm going to Jesus for that food. And I'll highlight one more later in John 6. If anyone eats of this bread, talking about his body, he will live forever. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That verse helped me greatly. Belief is feeding on Jesus. It's taking him. It's receiving him. It's coming to him. It's looking to him. I'm blind. I'm looking to Jesus for sight. I'm hungry. I'm going to Jesus for food. I'm afraid. Going to Jesus for refuge. That's what John means by believe. It's not just a mental assent to information. That's not why John wrote the gospel. He didn't write this book so that you would just know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, or that you, uh, I I remember being asked this question, well, do you believe that Jesus died on a cross and he rose again? Yeah, then you're a Christian. Satan believes that. Demons believe that more clearly than I do. It doesn't make you a Christian because you believe a fact happened in history. It's a coming to Jesus for life for bread, for sight, for comfort. That's what John means by believe. He doesn't leave us in the dark here. He wants us to know what he means when he says the word believe, and then he wants us to do that. But even that's not an end in and of itself. Look back at the text. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Another huge concept in John. Yeah, belief is huge. So is life. Where life just appears over and over and over again. From the prologue, again, in him was life. This life was the light of men. John 3.16. Whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And I don't know if, if you were paying especially close attention to those verses that I just read a moment ago. You'll see that there's often that connection between belief and life in John. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 3. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Also John 3. John 3.16. Whoever believes in Him have everlasting life. John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Over and over again, John is tying these things together. Belief, belief, life. Belief, life. Belief, life. It's because John wants us to make that connection in our minds. In fact, this is John's most common description of salvation. It's eternal life. When he describes salvation, he describes it as life as opposed to death. So, John wants us to come to Jesus for our very lives. He wants us to understand that Jesus is the way to life. Any other way, any other door, leads to death. Believe in Jesus and live. Not just eternally, not just once you die you can live. Uh, that's, that's something that's noted that the, the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seem to focus on Jesus as bringing in the kingdom. And there's an already function of it, but also there's a not yet function of it that's pretty large too. The, the kingdom is coming But with life, Jesus presents eternal life as something that happens right now. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. He wants us to begin living eternally now and never die. Even if we die, we won't die. So two quick applications and then I'm done. First, Christians. And I... I want you to understand, this is not rote or routine or a throwaway line. This is a statement that is eternally important. As you have in the past, so now continue to believe in Jesus Christ. Don't stop believing in him. Most of the commentators here will, will they'll say that John has two focuses here. It's not just evangelistic. He's not just writing this to unbelievers so that they will begin to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's writing this to believers so that they will continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ. So they will not evidence that they had a false faith. They will not make shipwreck of their faith. They will not be like the, the, the seed that was scattered on the, the hard ground and it sprung up with joy. But then because it had no deep root, the sun withered it and it died. John wants Christians to continue believing. So Christian, do not through apathy or distraction or the love of the things of this world or an attachment to sin stop believing in Jesus. And again, I don't just mean, well, duh, I believe in Jesus. No, I mean loving Jesus. Don't stop coming to Jesus for food. Remember Demas. He walked away because he loved the present world. Of course, he still acknowledged that Jesus existed. It's not what John's after here. Believer in Christ, do not stop loving Jesus. Remember Lot's wife as the book of Hebrews solemnly warns us. But instead, observe Jesus here. Observe him in John and receive him. Feed on him. Love him. Drink him. Look to him. And keep looking to him. Don't be drawn away to other lesser things. Don't be satisfied with things that will eternally condemn you. Love Christ, look to Christ. Forsake anything that is hindering you from loving Christ better so that we may have life in his name. Second application, and finally, unbelievers. Those in this room that may not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and not in the way that John means anyways, may know a lot of facts about Jesus, but you don't love Jesus. You look in your heart and you find Jesus You find the whole thing just dull. A lot of things you'd rather be doing. The gospel of John is itself a call to decision. So unbeliever, you don't really have an option. You have to decide. Accept Jesus, love him, feed on him, or reject Jesus as a savior and know him only as a judge. But again, as I said earlier, Jesus delights to welcome sinners. Jesus loves when sinners lay down their arms and believe in him. So my exhortation to you from the scriptures this morning, unbelievers and believers alike, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Observe him in the gospel of John and believe on him to the saving of your souls. Let's pray. God, the world, our flesh, the devil, our great enemy, conspire against us moment by moment to keep us from doing the things that we've heard this morning, to keep us from loving Jesus and believing in Jesus. So God, please grant us the strength, grant us the eyes, grant us the appetites to love Jesus, to pursue him as if our lives depended on it, because they do. Thank you for your clear teaching about Jesus in the scriptures. Thank you for welcoming sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.